0: Dartmoor, England's last wilderness, a wild and wondrous region where the Tors and Myers remain haunted by the fables and legends of this mysterious place. Welcome to Myths of the Moor. the 10th and final episode of Myths of the Moor, and this time, Dad, we're going to do it a little bit differently, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh,
0: no particular topics today, but what we thought we'd do is go through some of the reference books that you have used throughout the podcast for the various uh, strange and wonderful stories that we've had, um, and give people a sort of bibliography of uh, the Myths of the Moor, so that they can go off and do their own reading.
1: Right. Well, we've got a little pile of books here in in front of us, which Mm -hmm. we'll dip into from time to time. But I think maybe we ought to just explore a little bit about why I got involved and interested in Dartmoor in the first place. Go on, yeah. Now, I think I may have mentioned in one of the earlier episodes that uh, as a young lad at Devonport High, I spent quite a lot of time in the school library. Mm -hmm. And One of the books there that really caught my attention um, was by the Reverend Samuel Rowe, and I'm just picking up my own copy of it now. It's called A Perambulation of Dartmoor. Mm. Uh, Why a perambulation? Was he a great walker, the Reverend Rowe? Well, no, he wasn't. Um, The perambulation was one that was made in the 13th century by a group of knights who had been requested to make a very, very accurate map of the actual boundaries of the moors themselves and the bits that belong to the king and the bits that lay outside that. And they would mark various um, waypoints along the way, so it might be a rock or a tor or a stream. And this became known as the perambulation of Dartmoor. And it was really one of the very early topographical works that describe the whole area mm. and I think Rowe produced that in 1848 yeah. and one of the things that always fascinated me about the way um, historians looked at Dartmoor at that time was that they saw all the um, ancient monuments, the stone rows, the stone circles, hut circles and of course they ascribed the whole lot. To the Druids, yes, yeah. I've just put a marker in yeah, there. Go if you have it. a look at yeah. this marker, um, <clears throat> monumental relics says Rowe. Even on page twenty-one, he he says the Druidical temples were hypathral, <laughs> perfectly open to the sky. On Dartmoor, the stones which form the circle are for the most part insufficient in height for any purpose such as that at Stonehenge nor have the uprights ever been furnished with imposts. Our Damnonian sacred enclosures are therefore of the same descriptions as the final druidical temple at Avery, which I think we would call Avebury these days, um, in Wiltshire. And so he was very, very much of the opinion that what we now know is this totally mythical um, group of the druids were at the root of everything. But if we go back even further than Roe, Some of the very earliest references to Dartmoor and to its historical um, connections are in a very well-known Devon publication, Risdon's Survey of Devon. And we find here, I've got a lovely copy which I've recently had rebound. What Um, what year are we looking at for Risdon? Risdon was published earlier than Rowe. He was actually published in 1811. Right. And it's quite a, he he also speaks of the um, perambulation he says and of course although this was published in 1811 it was actually written a lot earlier century earlier also he says the whole forest of dartmoor lying in the verge thereof the charter for the limiting of huge bounds is as follows and then he goes on and quotes the entire um, Latin text of the perambulation. Sure. And it, it's absolutely wonderful because you can find certain bits in the Latin that you can recognize. Ad medium terbarium et sic in longam Wallabrook. So we know about the river Wallabrook. Well, let's see if we can find another one. Well, so on, it, it goes on. And uh, he concludes all this by saying, In the forest, the forest of Dartmoor, it's called forest because it comes from the Latin foresta, meaning wild beasts, and it was where the king could hunt the wild beasts. Mm. He says, in the forest are three remarkable things. The first is a high rock called crockern tor, and we've spoken in previous episodes about um, old crockern, where the parliament for stannery causes is kept. The second is child's tomb. Again, we've spoken about... Um, the legend of Child the Hunter and how he had to kill his horse Mm, and climb Mm. inside to to save his life. He he actually failed in that. Um, And the third is some acres of woods and trees, a fathom about which is called Wistman's Wood. Now, it was Risdon and his three remarkable things who really started off the interest in the topography of Dartmoor. Mm. Talking about the, the the topography, I see mentioned in here
0: in uh, Rowe, he describes it as the Venville precincts. Yes, what's that all about? Then? Well, Venville
1: rights um, were the rights that the commoners had to um, carry out certain specific tasks. Like there was one was the right of Turbury, which is to cut peat. Yeah, um, I think there was another piscary, which is fishing. And, and these were all rites of the Dartmoor commoners. I
0: see. I just randomly turned to a page here, mm. and it just happens to be yeah. the one about Fice as Well.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's... Uh... Well, what does he say about as Well? Does he tell the same story? Yeah, he mentions that
0: John Fitz was an astrologer.
1: I'm not
0: sure if we mentioned that.
1: No, I don't think we do.
0: Um, yeah, Fitz the astrologer and his lady. They were both pixie ladies. Yes, they were, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, it it's funny he's talking about the uh, the the well the water, but it's weird because there's uh no soon as they satisfied their thirst and they were enabled to find their way through the moor towards home without the least difficulty. So
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I mean it's a pretty it,
0: it it's a very specific type of sort of enchantment, isn't it? Mm, yes, Just it to is. to be able to find very your way so. home.
1: Yeah, there you go. But talking of enchantment, I was mm. I see you're holding the book there. I was enchanted by that book when I saw it first in the school library, to the extent mm. that I borrowed it from the school library. And, <laughs> B- borrowed kept it during my time in the lower sixths and the we had a middle sixth at Devonport High as mm. well. And the upper sixths. And um, just before I left school, the school librarian said, oh, have you still got that copy of Roe that you <laughs> borrowed three years ago? Um, we, we'd quite like it back. Um, and so unfortunately, I had to wait many, many years until I found this. I can't remember now where I found it, um, but I managed to get my own copy of this wonderful book with its beautiful little It's inscribed engraver, by ben, I think, isn't it? Is it? Uh, it's inscribed by somebody. Oh, it's AJV Radford. Okay. Um, now, Radford, of course, is, is a name that's also very well known um, in the context of Devonian history. Um, one of the uh, historians of the Moor was uh, Raleigh Radford. Okay. And if you read the transactions of the Devonshire Association, you'll find many, many articles um, by him. And, of course, it, it was reading the Devonshire Association transactions that I got to know some of the classic names of Dartmoor scholarship, if you like. Um, people like Ormerod, Pengeli, Spence Bate. These were um, gentlemen of leisure to some extent <laughs> who spent most of their spare time researching Dartmoor. They set up the uh, Dartmoor Exploration Committee because at that time the whole thing was was totally new mm. to people. Um, It it just hadn't really been explored or written up in um, a professional or an academic way. And so this is what uh, formed the basis of many of the uh, early transactions of the Devonshire Association. And I used to love reading those descriptions of the kiss veins and the stone rows and the beautiful little line drawings that, that people had made. It just fired my... My youthful interest, and it's something that's been with me ever since.
0: I'm just looking at some of the plates here. In, I'm in Carrington, I think. Ah, right? yes, Carrington, yeah. Dartmoor. There's one here of, of Wisman's wood, which is rather good. Makes it look very fantastical. Um, yeah, some lovely
1: stuff. Yeah. The interesting thing about Carrington, and I put a couple of markers in there. Um, basically, um, Carrington Startmore was a poem. It was a lyric poem. Um, written or published certainly in 1826 I've got a second edition here I've never managed to find a first unfortunately Um, but it's interesting the preface begins like this Dartmoor is generally imagined to be a region wholly unfit for the purposes (laughs) of poetry (laughs) but they who entertain such an opinion know very little of that romantic solitude and off he goes in wonderful florid lyrical prose. Dartmoor, thou wert to me in childhood's hour a wild and wondrous region. Now that phrase, wild and wondrous region, was taken from this poem and has been used again and again. Including in the intro to this very show. Very much so, yes. Yes. Um, So it just shows there's a continuity (laughs) of thought going through, isn't there? Um, But what's really good about Carrington's poem is not so much the poem itself you know, listen to this. In Britain's matchless isle, unnumbered floods meander, and she wears a verdurous robe that seldom cheers the lawns of softer, brighter climes. Well, people don't write poetry. <laughs> and they really don't. But in the back of the second edition of Carrington's poem are the famous Burt's Notes. Right. Now, there's a gentleman called Mr. Burt, And he wrote rather more um, academic notes about the aspects of Dartmoor covered in Carrington's poem. And I'm just looking at this one, note 24, page 60. Lovely little engraving of Child's Tomb, which of course we've spoken about. And Bert goes on to tell us about the luckless hunter, John Child of Plimstock, a gentleman of large possessions and a great hunter. And he tells the famous story about how he wrote on the skin of his horse. <laughs> the first that finds and brings me to my grave. The lands of Plimstock, they shall have. There was a, they loved the rhyming couplets back yeah. then, and, and we still do, of course. Um,
0: Half-ride there, I'd say.
1: Uh, yeah, gray, <laughs> grave and have, Yeah, yeah a, you, you, You've got to sort of push it's, it's the envelope a slightly to get... It. Well, you stretch it, but uh, Bert manages to he pull he it He gets off. away with it. Yeah, he gets away with it. Well, don't forget, you know, that's not Bert's. Those are not Bert's, Bert's words. That was poor old John Child dying... Yeah, yeah
0: of that's true. Yeah. ...cold
1: and hunger inside the dead horse... <laughs> Desperately trying to think up a rhyming couplet. I mean, yeah. He, you know, to be fair. to It's nice, right, not he? a bad effort, given he the did, circumstances. He did pretty well,
0: if you ask me. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough.
1: Oh, uh, But, of course, what we've been talking about very much in this series is folklore mm. and the myths and legends of the Moor. And what, one of the most prolific writers on that subject... Um, was a lady called Ruth St. Ledger Gordon. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, I've got this wonderful book here, which I see I've inscribed in fairly sort of immature handwriting, my signature, 7th of May 1966. Wow. Yeah, well, I, I have a much this. more modern version of yeah, but... yeah, I believe you do, yeah. yeah. Um, but this was the first edition, published by Robert Hale. Yes, first published 1965, so I do actually have a first edition of this. She was writing from Sticklepath on Dartmoor, and her book is an absolute goldmine of wonderful stories. And um, we've covered most of them in this series. Yeah, this has been a key, a key reference, a key source, premise, really. I would yeah. say. Um, I'm just looking. There's a, in here. There's a little press cutting. Now, why have I kept this? I wonder. Oh, horror in a handshake. Oh, yes, this tells the story, more recent story, of the famous hairy hands ah, yeah. legends. One so, of my favourites. Mm, well, this article was in the Independent newspaper. National national News. National News. Does the Independent still exist? Or is it one of yeah, those? But yeah, no, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. Yeah, OK. Um, nice long article here. Um, 13th of February, 1989, this uh, Sensing evil, she prayed for protection, and the hand sank out of sight. Mm. A more basic explanation comes from the blacksmith. <laughs> Too much cider. <laughs> <laughs> so, we don't know. Um, and, of course, in, in, in our, our previous episode, we were talking about pixies of yesterday and today. And here we have Ruth St. Ledger Gordon talking a lot about the little people. Mm something i didn't mention actually when we were talking about the pixies because it, it's not really the legend it is an actual thing mm-hmm. if you like is the pixies cave on the edge of sheepstore okay where the the landowner elford is believed to have hidden um from his persecutors during the uh, during the civil war okay um, it's very much decayed now, and I, I've never been able to find it. I think it's just a just a hole in the rocks where one has fallen on another. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Ruth St. Ledger Gordon is an absolute goldmine of and still available information. today. Still available today. Yeah. Um. In in a revised edition.
0: Yeah. Some of these, for example, the Carrington, I imagine you would struggle to get hold
1: of in. This form that it is now, it may exist. Yes, it? I mean, I'm holding a lovely leather-bound edition, and I do like to hold these books in a fairly um, respectful way, because, yeah. you know, I have seen people grab hold of a book by the cover, and these but these 200-year-old bindings, they're so fragile, <laughs> yeah. you could easily... Book. But this actually has two quite nice book plates in it. One, Jay Rawlings, uh, with no date, but it's a quite an interesting... Shield with three, I don't know the actual heraldic terms for these, three daggers with a helmet above, and then (laughs) um, there's an arm, an armoured arm coming out of the top, holding an arrow. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. And the other book plate is Ex Libris Patricia G.M. Shaw, 1964. So these books themselves have a history to tell. Indeed. so that's so that's that is... Uh, We've the dealt with Row Row.
0: Ruth St. Leger Gordon, Gordon, and Carrington. And
1: dear old Carrington with Burt Snopes, yeah. the late W. Burt, Secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, Plymouth. Um, so he obviously knew what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe. But again, it's illustrated with the most beautiful little line engravings yeah. by P.H. Rogers, who isn't that terribly well known? Um, but he's he's done some lovely little drawings here. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. But Ruth St. Ledger Gordon was influenced by another um, folklorist who I have mentioned, Theo Brown, mm. a lady, although Theo is normally a man's name. <laughs> you say that? Yeah. I had an uncle Theo. Um, he was definitely a man. But this is Miss Theo Brown, F R A I, a slender volume. A very slender volume. Why? The, the, the copy I have... Yeah, rather over-engineered it. hardback for such a tiny little volume. Because it was a library copy. Ah, okay. You okay. see it's got the Dewey oh, number yeah, there down, we at, go, yeah. down at the bottom here. I don't think libraries use the Dewey system I'm anymore. I'm not sure. But it has a rubber stamp inside mm. that says, Withdrawn from Devon Library. And never returned. And never. Well, no, it was withdrawn from... Oh, the, it's got so, the paid yeah, stamp on yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so so that's absolutely fine. And it then went into a second-hand bookshop. But you, you may remember, or our listeners may remember, some of the earlier stories we told um, are very much based on this slim little volume. And she calls it Preliminary Notes on the Folklore of Postbridge, which is a very small settlement right in the middle of Darwin. I mean, that is an extremely specific and niche topic, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> um but she begins, um, and I don't know, she makes an assertion here, and I don't know how justified she is. She says, mm. there is a growing need for a new <laughs> published collection of folklore, particularly studies based on one small area, which is just the point you made. Yeah. Well, you, She's she, to she acknowledges it straight away, which Absol- is fair to her. Well, absolutely, but, yeah. but she it does recognise that there is this Possibly niche requirement. Yeah, there's a burgeoning Uh, need for
0: incredibly specific folklore
1: tales. And it also um, emphasises just how tenuous some of these stories are, because she says here, I mean, she admits this. um, She says, any inhabitant of Postbridge reading this will exclaim, wherever did you hear that? (laughs) So even the residents of
0: Postbridge haven't heard the stories. And the
1: answer would be, oh, from one of your own (laughs) neighbours. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, they're... She, she herself is admitting that, she, to be honest, most of it is just yeah. made up. She's, stuff. she's providing a,
0: a, a very
1: small public service there for yeah. the people at Bridge. But um, I, just looking through, Pixies, quite a lot about Pixies again. Um, oh, what's this one? I haven't read this before. Um... Oh, it's quite interesting. Do you, do you think people would be bored yeah, if yeah. I were to read this? Well, give, give them a a Give them a, yes, give them a little pre yeah. Um This is a story um, recorded by a writer called R.J. King, who, again, I didn't bring his book down, but I do have his um, early um, 19th century book on Dartmoor in, in the collection. Um, he wrote of a house long inhabited by the same family, And in 1590 a new house was built for the very last of the family who married and had a baby. They were sitting by the turf fire and the mother dozed and as she woke she heard a strange low laugh thought she saw the flutter of a grey cloak on, and no changeling in its place. Mm. And thereby came the end of a long established and well-known family. King suggests that the family had in some way failed to acknowledge the demands of the earth spirits by a token sacrifice and so forfeited their future. I like the way that it's, the sort of default position is that a changeling is going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> is that not There was no changeling. No, no changeling. Oh, oh, bit no, of a shame. Yeah. No changeling, is it? But then, as we know, sometimes they're swapped back again. Yeah. And and the returned original child... Um, is then in better nick than it's they, in though, better nick yeah. and in... Um, Imbued with great deal of luck throughout his. Oh, it's the funny story of the Scotch sheepfold we discussed. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one. yeah we that Man one. came from Scotland, thought he'd <laughs> grow some sheep on the moor, built a sheepfold. <laughs> whole thing failed. Yeah, incredible. So that's Theo Brand. lovely little book, mm. as um, Simon has correctly remarked here. Stoutly bound <laughs> So that uh, it can be borrowed Many many times yeah. from the library Without risk of damage um, That might be a hard one to get hold of I would wager I, these I w- days. I would wager Well yeah. Without revealing my great age I've, I've been collecting books for at least the last 60 years yeah. And It's taken me all that time to build this Collection And there are still gaps Indeed. Still many many gaps but one of, one of my favourites, and we we speak about her so much in this series, is dear old Mrs Bray. Yeah. Now, this is a very nice edition. Yes. Now, Mrs Bray appears in two editions: the three-volume ah, Mrs Bray yes. and the two-volume yes. Mrs Bray.
0: This is the rare. Is this the rarer two-volume?
1: No, I have the rarer two-volume okay. edition upstairs, but unfortunately, the binding is is loose, and I didn't want to. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but in a um, digression, I might say that after many years, I've now found a very, very good bookbinder who is not far from us here in Columpton, near Exeter, mm. and he has uh, helped me to revive quite a number of my. Does that have any? Does friends. that have
0: any impact on
1: the value of an original? Uh, when you edition when you buy a book from a second hand or antiquarian book dealer, they will always say original binding or Okay um, Repaired Binding or New Spine. Yeah. I mean, for example, if we look at this um Risden here, you can see the spine has very, very recently been rebound in rather nice letters. Yes, yeah. Kim, the bookbinder, has kept the original title Oh, from the okay. the old spine and pasted it on yeah okay, uh, why so. did i have to do that because well it was becoming unreadable
0: i guess in the previous well it, one.
1: i i handed it to a friend to look at and unfortunately it fell upon. they held it <laughs> by the thing you must never do with an old book yeah. held it by the cover and it pulled yeah. the join between the frontispiece and the actual board covers yeah so Kim did me a lovely job on this. Yeah, it's, it's now beautiful. Got a really nice, tight-feel binding. And it has those wonderful, old, crinkly pages that you can yes. probably hear crunching. A lovely sound for a book. Mm. But we digress. Mm. We were yes, talking about, sorry, about Mrs. Bray. About book book. Yeah. Yes, Mrs. Bray. Mrs. Bray, her initial publication, the tri- on the spine it says, Bray's Traditions of Devonshire. If you actually look inside, it's headed on the title page, Traditions, Legends, Superstitions and Sketches of Devonshire on the Borders of the Tamar and Tavy, illustrated of its manners, customs, history, antiquities, (laughs) scenery and natural history in a series of letters to Robert Southey, Esquire, by Mrs. Bray. It's an extremely verbose title. Well, (laughs) if you look at most Victorian books, they do have these massively long titles. I've got a feeling probably you'll find Roe is the same, isn't it? And they always dedicated it to some um, high and mighty personage. Oh, okay. Um, Well, is relatively simple. Oh, no, here we are. Here we are. This is the proper title. A Perambulation of the Ancient and Royal Forests of Dartmoor and the Venville Precincts or a Topographical Survey of the Antiquities and Scenery with Notices of the Natural History, Climate, Agricultural Capabilities and a Valuable Collection of Ancient Documents by Samuel Rowe, Vicar of Crediton and a Member of the Plymouth Institution. And then he actually quotes Carrington, a wild and wondrous region. Yeah. And on the next page, his dedication to His Royal Highness Albert, the Prince oh, of Wales, nice. and Duke of Cornwall, this description of the antiquities and topography of his Forest of Dartmouth oh, I see is humbly dedicated <laughs> by gracious permission of His Royal Highness Prince Albert, Master, Fo- Master Forester, and Lord Warden of the Stannery. Pandering. So they as well, pandering <laughs> at his finest. Yeah. Mrs. Bray, on the other hand, we just picked her up here mm. by holding it gently in the palm of the hand. All so right. So to mm. um, <laughs> This is three volumes, and she decided to um, put her researches down in a series of letters to the poet, Robert Southey. Again, she was very much obsessed with the concept of the Druids. And I've got a feeling that the only reference we've ever had to Druids in literature mm. is from C- um, C- Julius Caesar, isn't it? De Bello yeah. Gallico. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he actually talks about the Druids. Um, but those two or three lines in De Bello Gallico has become the, the basis of this rather spurious history um, and
0: they were still in the dark on a lot of things
1: yes yes they were so celebrated the british priesthood yes yeah, so celebrated with the british priesthood at the time of the invasion of the romans under caesar and so far had their fame extended into foreign lands that we know in the authority of his writings such as the Gauls who were desirous of being perfectly instructed in the mysteries of their religion. And on that everything was based. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. Like anything, people were always looking for something they could
0: understand to explain mm. that the things they couldn't, right? And I suppose it was easier to explain some of the geological things that were going on on the moor by associating them to these group, mm. this group, the Druids, rather than actually understanding what had caused a lot of the stuff. Absolutely.
1: Yes. But that was Mrs. Bray writing in the 1830s. Yeah. And uh, again, she is an absolutely wonderful source of the kind of myths and legends and odd stories that we've been talking about in this series. So I can see another book uh, next on the pile
0: there, which is Crossing's Guide to Dartmoor, which is not specifically related to the supernatural or myths and legends. It's a, this is a sort of general go-to, must-have for any Dartmoor enthusiast, isn't it? Yes, it is.
1: And actually, I, I, I'm sort of slightly crestfallen here yeah. looking at this because this is not a first edition. Yeah. But there is a good reason for that. Because Crossing published his Guide to Dartmoor at the very, very beginning of the 20th century. This um, new edition is based on the 1912 edition. And he was the first to write handy walking guides to Mm -hmm. Dartmoor. So they were published in five slim paperback volumes. Um, I was going to say one for each quarter of the mall, but there were five of them. So <laughs> a bit like your
0: man who did the same thing up in—is um, it the Yorkshire
1: Wainwright? Wainwright, yeah, that's exactly yeah, the very, chap- very similar. Yeah. And crossing himself, um, we were talking about this only yesterday when we were on the malls. Mm. Um, he came up with these lovely little line sketches. So wherever you stood on your walk, you could. Orient yourself by looking at yeah. the skyline and amazingly he always shows just a few little fluffy clouds yeah. um, <laughs> as if scudding across an otherwise cloudless sky yeah. here we are for example double waters looking east you can see yeah, black tour, leather tor, sharp Tor, and a few little fluffy clouds um, and of course those profiles haven't changed in the hundred years since the book was written um, so, Crossing was an absolutely indefatigable walker. Um, I'm just looking at the uh, blurb here inside the cover. Um says, The guide first appeared in 1909 and for many years has been virtually unobtainable. The few second-hand copies have been eagerly sought and realised high prices.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of self-promotion
1: on there. Yep. I have managed to... Um, acquire quite a few of the individual of uh, separate five series. Um, but this was produced by a company called David and Charles, who were very um, wide, um, handy well, wi- widely read um, publishers of West Country books back in the 1960s. Um, I think they were actually railway enthusiasts. It was David St. John Thomas and Charles Hadfield. Mm. And Hadfield um, did a lot of... Um, research into industrial archaeology and published books on the canals of the West Country and so on. And they were actually based in the old railway station at um, Newton Abbott. I think they still exist, but their um, book lists are now rather sort of wider, more general interest Mm. stuff. Interesting. Crossing more or less wore himself out, walking endlessly over Dartmoor, um, writing all this stuff down in very, very great detail. Yeah. Um,
0: so we've got, we've got one more book on the pile. Are there any other, before we finish, finish off, are there any other mentions where you haven't brought the actual book down here? Absolutely, yes. yes. Okay.
1: Um, we, we could, of course, go on for a very long time. Yeah. But the, the other thing that Crossing um, was very, very good at um, was enumerating all the various antiquities of Dartmoor. And he was particularly uh, prolific when he was writing about the Dartmoor crosses. Yeah, um, I've got three different versions of crossings, crosses, crossings, crosses. <laughs> yeah. um, all illustrated again with beautiful little line engravings, and uh, each uh, looked at from a slightly different point of view, but basically recycling the same information. <clears throat> um, Time and time again. Another lovely little collection I've got um, is Dartmoor Pictorial Records by Bernard. Uh, He was one of the first, I suppose, sort of semi professional archaeologists. And in the days of early photography, he put together a collection of four volumes um, of his own photographs of various um, antiquities on Dartmoor Mm -hmm. that he was working on uh, as an archaeologist they were published in very small numbers i think the first one was about 150 copies right okay um, and the th- the final three 200 copies each something like that and it took me ages i've now got all four but i've never seen them together
0: as a set
1: interesting the four yeah Absolutely the search uh, goes on fascinating well the collections get split up and then you know they go to a second hand book dealer and yeah. he might sell the third volume to somebody who misses that in his collection and so on. Mm, sure. So it, it takes a while to get hold of these things. But I, I yeah, I just did make a little note here, um, Dartmoor influences. And of course Bering Gould. Yes. We mentioned Bering Gould, another yeah. folklorist. And he was again very much involved in the early exploration of Dartmoor. He was on the same group that people like Bernard and, and Spence Bate were. They used to go out every weekend in all weathers, excavating. Probably not in a very um, scientific way, as an archaeological dig would be carried out today. Sure, but you know they would go out on the moors. They get a couple of local farmhands as labourers, or oh, dig there. Oh my good man! Yeah, yeah. You know, so they wouldn't bother to sort of put a meter square and and do stratigraphy no, so it was and all never that stuff. Hugely accurate, I no. guess. And then they would find things which would subsequently get lost. Mm. There's the famous pommel of a, a Bronze Age sword or, or dagger okay. um, described, but now mysteriously lost. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, you've you've got to wonder about these people sometimes. <laughs> um, yes, we've dealt with crossing Baring Gould, um, St. Ledger Gordon. We've spoken about Uh another uh, much more recent writer um, is Eric Hemery. Yeah. He's produced a wonderful book called High Dartmoor, a book of such magisterial size, it's over a thousand pages, it comes in its own slipcase. Oh, wow. So it won't fall apart um, on the shelf. Um, I've got a copy here. Um, It's not immediately to hand, but it is probably the most detailed description of every last little stone, bridge, river crossing, Antiquity on Dartmoor, and he he was a little a little bit naughty in a way because he tended to use older spellings of place names so that you don't always associate the name he's using, for example, where we were yesterday, West Milltor, yeah, all the Ordnance Survey might spell it with mill, like the place where you grind corn, yeah no, he won't have it one l yeah okay Rotor. He calls it rough talk. Yeah. And, um, you know, unless you are fairly familiar with what you're reading, you can get into a terrible muddle. <laughs> Other um, writers who are more sort of chatty and discursive in what they do. There's a wonderful little series of books called Small Talk at Reland. Yeah spelt W R E Y land, but I'm sure it's pronounced Reland and not Rayland. Cecil Tor was a gentleman landowner, um, near the village of who lived near the village of Lustley. And Small Talk at Reland came out in in three privately published editions. I think they were originally intended for his um, former student pals at Cambridge. Okay. Um, but they were basically just interesting snippets of information that he'd got from talking to his neighbors. Right. Various tales of, uh, intrigue and mystery yeah, yeah. around this tiny little hamlet of, of, of Reland. And that, strangely enough, that's been published and republished in so many different forms. Um, it slightly, always slightly surprised me that it was actually that popular. But yeah. I, I think David and Charles brought out a revised edition and there have been various um, facsimile editions and so on. Um, but for the Dartmoor Book Collector, there is one particular name um, that shouldn't be overlooked. Mm. And that's Peter Hamilton Leggett. Leggett. And he was the man who produced the first fully comprehensive Dartmoor bibliography okay if you're looking for a book on Dartmoor and if you want to know that a book you're buying fits into your Dartmoor collection if it's in Hamilton Leggett, you're on okay that's the way forward excellent I've actually managed to um, add one or two titles I had quite a long correspondence with him many years ago okay Um, I found a couple of little titles that he hadn't actually managed to pick Ah, up okay um one was about um, the parish of Dean Pryor, which is, strictly speaking, on the edge of Dartmoor, but okay. not in the actual park. forest of okay, Dartmoor, yeah, not in the National Park. It's called, um, it was by somebody called R.S. McMinn. <laughs> um, and it was called something like How We Crowned the King at Dean. Okay. And it was, again, written for private publication for a group of chums who came down to stay in his country place, yeah. Dean Pryor, at the time, I think, of the coronation of George V. Okay. So it's basically just written for private circulation. Yeah, yeah. Um, few copies were printed, and somehow i managed to stumble across Ooh. one. Peter Hamilton Leggett hadn't got it in the book. There you go. Um, he's published several subsequent um, appendices, yeah. and of course he's added these in. Excellent. And I'm not the only one who's done Something sure. Yeah. Lots of people have come up with very rare and unusual things. Um, but there are so many other names you could think of um, that I've sort of had vague correspondences with over the year. Um, I'm just trying to th- think of his name. Oh, Ted Masson Phillips. Right. He was a great... He lived in Totnes, I think. I've met him once or twice. And... Uh, he was again a great recorder of wayside stones, and almost a sort of successor to crossing in the sense right, that he yeah. would, if a stone had been, or a cross had been referred to by crossing as only the socket remains, old head Matson Phillips would go rooting around in hedgerows until he, so he found it, or he would say, uh, this former cross is now used as a gatepost in some yeah, field." Yeah, okay. so he he did uh, quite a lot of work like that. Mm-hmm. And the other chap who I I met on a couple of occasions, and actually who gave me some quite rare books, um, was John Summers Cox. Oh yes, yeah. Now Summers Cox is the author of a wonderful book on Dartmoor topographical prints. So you know all these amazing old nineteenth-century engravings of Lidford Gorge or yeah. Leather Tor Bridge, whatever it might be. Summers Cox researched, listed. Everyone, details, dimensions, first printing, number printed, and so on. Absolute mine of information. And again, I managed to come across one or two prints that he hadn't recorded. So,
0: um,
1: he invited me to his uh, very nice home, um, King's Tainton, I think. So he's passed on now. Actually. And he's also written quite a few um, interesting articles. I think he appears, or an article of his appears, appears in the new. Um, I may be wrong on this. The new edition of um, the New Naturalist series. Oh, I Colin's see yeah. New okay. Naturalist series on um, Well. So, there
0: you go. That is quite a collection of various uh, various books related uh, to Dartmoor, and specifically those that have covered some of the stranger sides of things. If you if you had to have one book that you would go to on this specific topic, would it be would it be Bray that you would go to?
1: No, I don't think I would. I think I would recommend to somebody who's interested in getting into the literature yeah. of Dartmoor, a relatively recent book okay. by a lady, and I must admit, I don't know what her background is, but it's called The Discovery of Dartmoor. Again, she quotes Carrington, a wild yeah. and wondrous region on the front cover. Patricia Milton, where this was only published in, well, I say only, gosh, does time fly, published in 2006. Okay. But what she does is to look at all the authors of Dartmoor over the last 200 years yeah. in fact starting right back with uh, in the 16th century with people like Drayton's Polly Um and it is the most wonderful book because mm. it lists and describes all the various authors John Sweet for example who produced a lot of rather um vertically enhanced <laughs> yes yeah engraving. So I'm just yeah. looking at this picture of a tin mine on Dartmoor by Sweet. You know, it looks as if it's in about a three hundred foot yeah. deep gully, which of course it, it yeah. never really was. Um but it is really a most wonderful book. Mm. Um I recommend it to anyone. Strangely enough it wasn't it was published by Philimore, which is a Sussex publisher who normally deal with um Churches and, and architecture. Um, but just sort of briefly says early visitors to Dartmoor, the great granite mass, blah blah blah, um, for centuries the reason was judged as dreary in the extreme. And then she goes on to explain how later writers realized that that really wasn't the case at all. And it was an absolute um, goldmine, if you like, of legend and story, not. And, of course, just a wonderful place to be. Um, so, yeah, if anyone would uh, like to get that basic introduction to Dartmoor and its literature, uh, Patricia Milton's a good author to start with. Excellent stuff.
0: Well, there we go. That brings us to the end of our run of 10 episodes. That it's been an absolute pleasure. I well hope on. hope everyone's enjoyed uh, listening along and we do apologise for the slightly uh, longer break between uh, episode eight and the final <laughs> two.
1: Well, it did give me time to research a little bit more about Pixies. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go.
0: So thank you, everybody. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the podcast. They will remain online for you to, to, to listen at your leisure. And you never know, we may be back again in the future. But thanks once again, Dad.
1: Great pleasure.
0: And we'll see you again soon. Cheers. Bye.